try to get Sherry to teach me how to play like that, and I never made it past Yellow Rose of Texas, so <laughs> uh, uh, piano wasn't my thing, but uh, thank you for being here this morning. Take your Bible and be turning over to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be in verse 5 in a moment. Uh, just to let you know, um, kind of mark your calendar on September 4th, it's a Sunday, on Sunday night after church, uh, we're going to have an information sharing time. So we'll get done at 7. Rwanda gets done. Come in here for about 15 minutes. And I'm going to share some stuff with you, some information about the church and where we've been and, and the future, where we're going. It's not a business meeting. It's just um, I want to talk to you and I want to show you some stuff, put it up on the screen. So mark that. I know it's Labor Day weekend. You've had plenty of vacations this summer. So... Um, you know, I know it's a holiday weekend, but if you're in town, plan to be here that evening on the 4th and uh, spend, you know, 15 minutes or so uh, in here after church, and uh, I think you'll uh, be glad that you did. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we'll begin in verse 5. I want us to think this morning for a few minutes about the kingdom age. Um, so far in Hebrews, you understand that the, the writer to Hebrews is is writing to Jewish Christians. And you, you think about this for a minute. Now, Jewish Christians, when they came to Christ, uh, in, that, in the first century in particular, they were excommunicated from Judaism. Many times their families counted them as dead. It was a serious thing. It, it took a commitment, real surrender to Christ to be saved uh, as a Hebrew. And they would have had a lot of questions about their new faith. They would have had a lot of questions about the church and about about Jesus, and you got to understand, they came from Judaism was the center of who they were, particularly in the first century. And so what the writer to Hebrews is doing is he's addressing those issues with them. And let me just remind you very quickly, so far he has addressed some important things with them. Number one, he said, look, Jesus is the full revelation of God to us. Now in their mind, they would have been thinking God gave the law, God, God revealed himself, we have the temple, we have the sacrifices, and, it, and, and it, early on in, in the first century, the temple was still standing until AD 70 when Titus destroyed it. So they would have had a lot of questions. They would have been trying to reconcile the two. They would have been trying to figure out, you know, okay, I've trusted Jesus, I believe he's the Messiah, I've asked him to forgive my sins, and they're saved, they're in the church, but they would have still struggled with all the, all the Judaism and the traditions. And so he says to them, very first thing, he said, look, Jesus is the full revelation of God. And what he meant by that was not only is he the full revelation of God as we see God revealed in Jesus, but what he's saying is he's the culmination of all you knew under the law. He's the fulfillment of all that. Everything that the law pointed to is Jesus. And so he said, you don't need to look back at that stuff. You, you have everything God wants you to know in Jesus. And the same is true for us today. You don't need any other religion. You don't need any religious exercises, cultures, you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. Okay? And that's what the writer's saying. And then secondly, he said, um, he said to them, Jesus is superior to angels. Now, to us, that seems a little strange. You go, well, yeah, that, that's kind of intuitive. No, but to them, they held angels in high esteem. In other words, angels were instrumental in delivering the law. Angels were instrumental in delivering messages, Gabriel. And, and, they, and angels were very interactive in the Old Testament with the ministry and the mission of God to Israel. When Jesus came uh, in a theophany, angels were with him to talk to Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. And the angels actually went down there in the city 
and you know, grabbed Lot by the back of the neck and said, you got to get out of here because God's going to uh, destroy the city. So angels were very involved in, in what was going on. And he said to them, angels, uh, that Jesus was superior to the angels and, and really gave them some reasons why. He said, well, number one, he's God. He's, he's eternally God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So it stands to reason he's superior to angels. Secondly, Jesus created the angels. They were created to serve him. They do his bidding. So he's superior to them. And then thirdly, in connection to the church, Jesus, you'll see in the, in the text this morning, has earned, if you will, and that's a relative term for us. Jesus didn't have to earn anything, but because of his, his dying on the cross and completing the plan, he's been elevated in heaven to the right hand of the Father in the place of honor. And so he is superior to the angels in the sense of being the Savior, of having, of having bought our redemption and the church. And then last week, just to kind of move into, into our thoughts this morning, he said to them a word of warning, which was very applicable to us. He said, be very careful that in your Christian faith as brand new Christians that you heed, or remember the, the definition from the Greek word is to lend your mind or your ear toward this, toward this thing. He said, very, be very careful that you heed what you've learned about Jesus, your relationship with him and the word, so that you don't, uh, that you don't uh, slip, that you don't miss the point, that you slide away or you drift away. And the idea there is of a ship going out of the channel, missing, missing the mark. And what he was saying is that we're not in danger of ever losing our salvation. If you've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus saved you and you can't undo that. You, there's nothing you can do to unsave yourself. And why in the world would you want to, uh, you know, on top of that? But the fact is you can't unsave yourself. But what can happen to us as Christians, which is where the warning is very important to us, is we can fail to heed what we know and when we do that, when we don't give our mind and our attention to the Word of God and to, and to what God's called us to do and to Jesus Christ, our Savior, the world will infiltrate our lives and we'll become carnal and we'll begin to drift and we'll begin to miss the mark, okay? And we'll move away from a point, which is what the Word means. Well, the point we should stay connected to is Jesus all the time. Not, and now we can't unconnect from Jesus again because we are saved, but we can become carnal in the flesh, as the Corinthian church was, and Paul scolded them, we can slide away or we can miss the mark. So the warning to them was the same thing. In other words, to them he was saying, don't be tempted to go back into Judaism. Don't, don't lose your focus on Jesus and let this stuff begin to distract you. Stay focused on, 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 what's, on what's important, which is Christ. And for us today, uh, I, I, I can't say strong enough the way we stay strong in our relationship with Christ in a practical way is through the Word of God, through reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit teaching us and us learning the Word and prayer and being around other Christians. People will tell you, you know, I can be a Christian. I don't have to go to church. That's wrong. We need one another. We need to influence one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. That, we need one another. And God created the church that way. And so the writer warned him. Now today... Beginning in verse 5, I didn't forget where we are. Beginning in verse 5, he's going to talk about the kingdom. And he said, well, why would he move from this warning to talk about the kingdom? Think about it. What was near and dear to the heart of Jews? We want our Messiah to come. We want the kingdom reestablished. We want, him to, we want that promised one to sit on the throne of David. And we're looking for that. So these Jewish Christians, in their mind, what would they have been thinking about? Okay, I trusted Jesus. And we believe he's the Messiah, but he didn't set up the kingdom. 
which is why most of them rejected him anyway, because he, he didn't fit their idea of what the Messiah was going to look like. So now these Jewish Christians would have been thinking, okay, so how about the promise of God to Abraham and the kingdom, and Jesus left and went back to heaven, so how does this work? So now the writer is going to explain to them about the kingdom age, beginning in verse 5. Look at verses 5 to 8. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Verse 7, You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Verse 8, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see, do not yet see all things put under him. This whole passage hinges on the term the world to come, the, the kingdom to come. Now, for the Jews, again, it was very simple. God promised us a Messiah, he's coming. He's going to sit on the throne of David, and we're gonna, he's going to be our God. We're going to be his people, and we're going to be the chief nation again in the world. That's, they know that. And when you read the New Testament, that's what they, the, the religious leaders in particular are always talking about the kingdom. What the writer says right here is, listen, in the world to come, God's not elevated the angels or anybody else to have dominion. What you're going to see in a minute is, is it us who are going to have dominion with Christ. And that's what he's trying to encourage them about. Let's talk about the world to come first. What, what is the order? What is, in the Old Testament, they think the kingdom of Jesus coming. How do we know it from the New Testament now in the fuller revelation of God? Well, here it is. We're not going to take the time to go look up all the passages. If you have any questions about this, you can email me later, and I can give you all the passages. But for sake of time, I'm going to walk you through it. So here's how it works. From right now, from today, and I prayed this morning that Jesus would come back today. So if he does, don't be surprised. Because I asked him to. He ain't coming until he's ready, but you get it, okay? If Jesus were to, if it was the time now to say somewhere on the planet, in a church service, somewhere the last person who's going to be part of the body of Christ, the church, gets saved, I think Jesus is coming. When that last person gets saved, I think he's coming. No other reason to wait. I think he's coming. He's going to get to church. Here's what will happen. You know the rapture's coming. Jesus is going to appear. He's going to call his church out of, out of the world. Those who are dead in Christ will rise in their new resurrection bodies. They'll come out of the graves. Well, that would be a glorious thing. And then if we're alive when that happens, we'll be changed in an instant, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and we'll go meet Jesus in the air with all of them. And the Bible says we'll be with him forever. So what happens after that? Well, a lot. The Bible says that as soon as the church is raptured out of here, which is these Jewish Christians would have been learning all this stuff. As soon as the church leaves here, the tribulation is going to begin. Tribulation is a seven-year period of God judging uh, the wicked who have rejected him and who fight against him. Antichrist will come to power, the false prophet. Read the book of Revelation. You can read all about that. At the end of the tribulation, Satan knows that God has an eternal plan with Israel being the center of it, with Jesus sitting on the throne of David, and then his kingdom age coming. Satan is going to do his best during the tribulation to kill all the Jews. By the second half of the tribulation, he's, he's going to directly go after them. And right before he succeeds, right at the end when it looks like they have no hope, guess who's going to show up? 
King Jesus. He's coming with the armies of heaven. And so he's going to put down Antichrist, destroy his armies with one word. He's going to say it, the sword of his mouth. Antichrist and the false prophet are going into the lake of fire. They're done. Never hear from them again. Satan's going to get locked up in a pit for a thousand years. There are a lot of questions about that. We'll just won't talk about it right now. But Satan gets locked up, chained up by an angel, locks him up, puts him in a pit. And Jesus, listen now, the kingdom that he's talking about here, the world to come, begins with the millennial reign of Christ. Why do we call it the millennial reign of Christ? Because the Bible says Jesus will rule this earth as it is, this earth, the one we have right now, for a thousand years. The description of Jerusalem is different. Jerusalem is, there's going to be an earthquake, it's going to split. I think, I believe, reading the Bible, that Jerusalem is going to be uh, a beautiful place again, trees and lushness and waters and rivers and the ocean. And Jesus is going to sit on the throne there in Jerusalem, on the throne of David, as the king of Israel and rule the world from there. There's going to be one government, Jesus. There's going to be one law, Jesus. There's going to be one righteousness, Jesus. You get it, right? He's, his kingdom is going to begin with the millennial kingdom, and it's going to be all Jesus. Now, everybody who goes into the millennial kingdom will be those people who got saved in the tribulation, and they will make up the Jews and the remnant of the world. Now, over a thousand years, people will have babies. The human beings who came out of the tribulation, they'll be married, they'll have children, they'll just live under the government of Jesus. All of those children that are born in the millennial kingdom during a thousand years have to accept Christ just like we did and like their parents did. Now, it'll be different for them because right now we see Jesus by faith. They can hop on a train or however transportation is in, they can go over to Jerusalem and see Jesus sitting on the throne in his resurrection body. They can hear him. They can listen to him. They can see him. Now get this. And again, I don't have time to get into details. There will be people by the end of the thousand years who will reject Jesus. Is that not astounding? Because at the end of the thousand years, they're going to let, God is going to let Satan out of the pit. He's going to unchain him. But, I don't, but that's not. Should have just threw him in the lake of fire in the first place and be done. But God's going to let him out. And at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, at the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to go out and lead another rebellion against Jesus. And people in the world who are born in that time are going to rebel against Jesus while he's sitting on the throne. You know what that proves about us? We are messed up. No, it does. It proves that our sin nature, other than Jesus saving us and giving us a new body one day, is, is irrevocable. We are so messed up by sin that that generation who will be able to see Jesus on the throne will be, will be deceived and be willingly led by Satan to rebel against Jesus. And what do you think is going to happen to that crowd? Same thing happened to the first crowd. Because Jesus is just going to speak and they're all going to die uh, and that's going to be that. Now, we're going through this quick, but it's good. Because this is what he's saying, the world to come. This is what he's talking about to these Jews. After the millennial kingdom and the rebellion of Satan, Satan will then be thrown into the lake of fire and they'll hear from him again. God's going to set up what's called the great white throne judgment. 
that's not an event you want to be at on the wrong side of the fence. Every lost person in all of humanity, every person who's rejected God, every person who rebelled against God, every person who rejected the grace of God, in every dispensation, in every generation of humanity from creation to that day that's lost, will stand before Jesus to be judged. God's fair and God's just. And he'll open the books that have the record of all the sins in it, and he will judge them. And, after, and every person who's adjudicated at the great white throne judgment is guilty, for no one will be innocent at that judgment. We're going to the lake of fire to never be heard from again. You say, well, what will happen after the judgment? After the great white throne judgment, after, after the final judgment, and every, everything's good, all the saved people are with Jesus, and we got the earth, and we got the kingdom, God's not done. The Bible says after the great white throne judgment that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Think about that. A new heaven and a new earth. You say, why is he going to do that? Well, I don't know. He didn't tell me, but here's my guess. This one is tainted by sin. The earth itself is tainted by sin because of us. The universe is tainted by sin because of us. You know that telescope thing they sent out there in space that they're taking big giant pictures of? And the stuff is pretty magnificent when you look at it. It's just, it's just majestic how God created it. It's all messed up because of sin. It's not as beautiful as God created it to be. It's not what God created it to be. So the Bible says that God is going to destroy this creation, this earth, this universe, the heavens, and make a brand new one. Matter of fact, I am going to read these verses to you because it's that important. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. Peter said, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Well, the day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, are all the same thing when Jesus comes, all that we talked about sets up his kingdom. So he says, looking for and hastening the, day of the, uh, the, the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to the promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's your clue. A new heavens and a new earth which there's just righteousness. There's no sin. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 and 2. John, seeing uh, the new, he said, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John saw it. Same thing Peter saying. John said, when I see it, I see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, also there is no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's what's coming. And what, and what the writer is telling these Hebrew Christians is, look, it all fits. Your expectation of a kingdom is exactly what's going to happen. And your Messiah is the one who's going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. And, and by the way, when the new heaven and the new earth gets here, and the new Jerusalem comes down, Jesus' kingdom will be forever. Forever. Now, you say, boy, that's a lot of stuff about the first four or five words of the first verse. It is. But here's what the writer's saying to them. Remember way back there he said, angels will not have dominion in that kingdom. That was his point. And the reason he said that is because he was kind of saying, who do you think is going to have dominion in that kingdom? Us with Jesus. That makes it even kind of a little more neat, doesn't it? I mean, you think, boy, the kingdom of Jesus is going to be pretty magnificent. Well, if you're saved, you have a part in it. Now, here's how this goes. You say, well, you know, I don't know anything about ruling. I know I don't either. 
But you know what Jesus has done? Jesus has said, I love you so much that when I save you, I'm going to put you in my family. And you're going to be my brethren and my sisters. And, a, and, and even the father said, I love you so much, I'm going to make you heirs and joint heirs with my son. So in his love and mercy to us, God has declared that he's going to allow us to share in his glory in rulership with him. Now that doesn't mean you get to scoot your chair right up next to his throne, okay? But what that means is, in his administration of his kingdom, of his reign, which is forever and ever and ever, you get to have a part in that, whatever that part is. And personally, I'm okay with whatever part it is. Wherever it is he says stand, I'm an old military guy. I'll stand there. <laughs> whatever it is he wants me to do, I'll be glad to do it. But the point is, he didn't give that to angels. He gave it to you. Why? Because you're different than angels. You're created different. You're his. He bought you. He redeemed you. You're part of the body. Now, because of that, the next thing the writer does in those verses we read, in verses 6 through 8, is he quotes an Old Testament passage that David wrote from Psalms. Actually, it's in Psalms 8. We won't go back there, but listen to it again. Verses 6 through 8. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, the context of that, which is the, the writer to Hebrews is using it to make a point about us, about the redeemed of Christ, those Christians in particular in his day. He's saying that, look, God had a specific purpose when he made us. David was, you know, David was a shepherd. And David probably wrote that passage. He's out looking at God's creation and looking at how magnificent it is in the night and the stars and all. And he, and he begins to wonder, God, you're so great and your majesty is so wonderful. Who is, who is man that you would even consider us? Who are we that you would, that you would care uh, about us? Who are we that you would love us? Who are, who are we in our sinfulness that you would do what you have done for us? And that's his question. Well, here's the answer. We are very special to God. You see, think about two things. God created us with two purposes in this world which will carry into the kingdom. Number one, he created us in his image. We cre God created us. In his, he didn't create angels in his image. He didn't create any other creatures. In his, he created us in his image. Now, there's a, a long theological discussion about what it means to be in the image of God, but let me give you a couple that will speak to you right away. Number one, God created in us, in summary, his character in a diminutive form. All that God is, he created in us in a non-deity way. You say, well, what does that mean? It means you're a free moral agent. It means you can choose to do right or wrong. My cat cannot choose to do right or wrong. He bites me, and then he figures out that was wrong. <laughs> like instantly, right after that. But a, a, a lion, for instance, in the, in, in, the, in the Sierra, will never feel bad for a little baby gazelle that was just born. Will never go, well, you know, that's a baby gazelle. I won't kill that one. I'll kill the big one. No, you know what the lion's thinking? Lunch. And that one can't run yet. That's what he's thinking. There's no, there's no moral free agency 
in all of creation except in you and me. What is that a picture? That's a picture of God. He's a person. He's a free moral agent who's righteous, who always chooses right, who always does right. What was our responsibility? To be like God, to do right. What did we do? Well, we did it the wrong way, okay? Starting with Adam. And we still do it wrong. But we are created in the image of God as free moral agents. We have the ability to love and hate. Animals, animals don't hate. They just want to eat. They just, do, they just do what they do, okay? They don't, they don't hate. They don't love. If you think your dog loves you, I'm going to break your heart. <laughs> He's fond of you, and you feed him, and he likes to be petted, you know, and if you let him sleep in your bed where it's warm, he's going to really act like he likes you because he likes that. Animals, don't, animals can't choose to love. They can't choose to not love. We are creating an image of God where we can choose to love people who are unlovable. That's God-like. That's only God can do that, and he created that in us. We can enjoy a sunrise, a sunset, the beauty of the mountains, paint a masterpiece, music, I mean, think about music. The birds sing, but they don't know what they're doing. They're just singing because that's the way God made them do. We write music. We create it in our heads. Who does that? Well, God created us to do that because he's a creator. He creates beauty. He creates things that are wonderful. We do that. We just do it in a messed up way because we're all sinful, okay? And we do it, and we do it, listen, we do it less than God created us to be able to do it. Because sin messed us all up. So you say, well, what's the, what's the connection to the passage here? What he's reminding these Jewish Christians is, look, God created you with a greater purpose than you even understand for yourself. And Jesus is the one who came to restore that purpose, to die for us. And in him, everything that has been destroyed by sin is going to be restored. Everything that has been diminished by our sinfulness and our, and our unrighteousness and our weak flesh and our weaknesses, Jesus has restored that. And when we're in his kingdom, we're going to realize the full potential of what God created us to be as we share in his dominion. Man, that's an awesome thought. That's an awesome thought. Well, let's finish. We're going to read verses 9 to 18. You think there's 10 minutes. I know we're not going to deal with all of verses 9 to 18. But what that does is it brings us to Jesus. And what the writer is saying to them is, look, here's, here's God's kingdom that's coming. Uh, it ain't the angels that are going to rule in it. It's going to be you who are saved. And then here's how. Look at verse 9. But we see Jesus. The word but draws the contrast. And all of our sinfulness and all, all of our unworthiness and, and all, all that's broken in us. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have uh, partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil or Satan. 
Verse 15, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For in him, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted. Now, get this last point. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, obviously, there's far too much in those verses for us to tackle this morning. But let me give you like three or four high points to connect to what the writer's saying here. Number one. Jesus willingly took a position lower than the angels for a very specific purpose, to save us. He came as the incarnation. That's what it speaks to. He was made there in verse 9, which means the incarnation. He came here in the incarnation to suffer death and by the grace of God so that he tasted death for everyone. The Father sent him. He came. It speaks specifically to his, his incarnation, his humility. So right now we are a little lower than the angels because of our sinfulness. But there's coming a time when we won't be, when we will have dominion with Jesus. Number two, notice in verse 10 that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. That's an interesting word in, in the Greek. He says here, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. That means he's the creator. In bringing many sons to glory, those who are saved, to make